What's up, everyone? Welcome to my corner of the internet. I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and this is Crossover Commerce, presented by Ping Pong Payments, the leading global payments provider helping sellers keep more of their hard-earned money. Each episode on here will feature leaders in the digital space to help entrepreneurs grow their knowledge and understanding of the Amazon and e-commerce world. Let's get started. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Ryan Kramer, and welcome to another episode of Crossover Commerce. Thanks for joining us on a lovely Wednesday afternoon here. Uh, This is episode 69 of this beautiful show that I've created called Crossover Commerce, presented by Ping Pong Payments. Just quickly about Ping Pong, we provide marketplace sellers and entrepreneurs global solutions for controlling their domestic and international funds. An account with Ping Pong enables companies to significantly reduce their cost when receiving or making international payments all on one platform so it's super easy to use and help increase operational efficiencies, saves time, and allows sellers to manage their business profits from one single source. For more information, if you want to just check this out, if you've never heard of Ping Pong, go ahead and check out the comment in the link below or the link in the comments below, I should say, and just check out Ping Pong to see what we can help you with and help you save on some international FX fees. But for everyone else who's joining us for this conversation, thanks for joining us live on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I love going live to all these social media platforms so that people can join and consume knowledge wherever they might be at that moment of the day. But if you are listening to this on a later uh, at a later time, can't catch us live, whether you're watching this on those social media platforms or you're downloading this on uh, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or excuse me, uh, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcasts, truly wherever you can download a podcast, that's where we're going to show up. Because if you search for crossover commerce by ping pong payments, you're going to find us. So go ahead and check those out below. But if you do watch us live, go ahead and like, share, and follow the, us on this episode as well as the future episodes. If you follow us on social media, we have a new Facebook page. So go ahead and follow that to be notified of future episodes. Because guys, guess what? I go live about four to five times per week. I'm the craziest person in e-commerce right now. I haven't met another person that can probably match the amount of content I'm pumping out there. But that's because I'm lucky enough to meet and ask a bunch of amazing people on the show. So I'm doing this to make sure that you are educated. You can converse with other great people in the Amazon and e-commerce space. And then it's not just, hey, what's the keyword? Uh, new keyword search terms that I need to be putting in my listing. It's not just, hey, what logistics do I need to be aware of as a beginner seller? We're giving you high-level content as a beginner, as an intermediate, as a global brand, and those who are even looking to exit their business. So it's a very holistic, great viewpoint that we're trying to bring you here, a perspective that is unlike any other in the Amazon or e-commerce space out there. That's my goal is to bring you that content and information. So go ahead and put that information, that Questions, comments, just to say hi in those comment sections below. We will see those. We'll make sure we give you a shout out. And if you have a specific question about what my guest or myself are talking about, make sure you call us out on it and we will make sure that we clarify things for you as well. Again, if you're watching or listening to this later, you can do the same thing as well. And we will make sure that those questions get answered. Anyways, about our guest today, really excited to talk to this gentleman. He is the founder and CEO of Seller Accountants where he exercises his passion for helping sellers maximize their businesses. He provides financial coaching for sellers totaling more than $100 million per year in e-commerce sales. Huge numbers we're talking about here, guys. Tyler is, or our guest, I should say, is uh, also, I just blew who we're talking about, also leads with Sellers Roundtable, an exclusive mastermind group for seven and eight-figure sellers before founding uh, Seller Accountants. He is a co-founder of Managing Partner 
for care to continue a home health care company who grew from zero to 100 employees in four years. That's fantastic. Awesome. Congratulations on that. Uh, seller Accountant is an accounting firm that works exclusively with e-commerce sellers to help them maximize profitability in their business. They offer regular bookkeeping and fractional CFOs advisory services to sellers who on average generate anywhere from $20,000 to $500,000 in monthly revenue. So anywhere for beginner sellers to more advanced sellers, these are the people for you. Welcome to the show, Tyler Jeffco of Seller Accountant. Tyler, welcome aboard. Thanks, Brian. appreciate you having me, man. It's uh, been looking forward to this. Look forward to talking to you. I know it's, it's been crazy. Like I, I swear I tell people this, my calendar gets booked out and this is not for like, I'm so popular. It's for the fact that there's so many people that want to talk and have great information on e-commerce and I can only go live so many times a week. And I do that. It just schedules out so far in advance. So I feel like we talked what a month ago or even back in December, gee, like it feels like a while ago, but we've had this on the books, but I'm super excited to have you on, man. Uh, it was funny that we were talking before the Stephen Pope give you a shout out and he was like, oh yeah, like I know Tyler. And I was like, yeah, he's on the show tomorrow. So it's That's stuff funny. like that, which is, it, it highlights the community itself. But then also it's funny that, you know, networking is super important. And I know like yourself, like you're talking with other sellers who refer business, but also helping other people out. So yeah, I, it's it's been crazy, I should say, along with 2020. It just kind of yeah. leads up to that. <laughs> yeah, we kind of went from the hashtag 2020 to just crazy 2021. And I mean, I think the big picture, Ryan, is that it just couldn't be a better time to be in e-commerce. And um, yeah, Pope's a great guy. I'm glad you had him on the show yesterday. Absolutely. So what's kind of like the journey for you, Tyler? I know I give you a very, everyone who's listening and watching a very high level of what you do. Like, what was that journey like? No one like shows up today and like, I'm going to do accounting work for e-commerce sellers. Like that doesn't happen unless that's your journey. But like, what was that journey like for you? And tell, tell me the love story of Tyler, Jeffco and e-commerce and how you got to where you are today. Well, I, when I was an undergraduate student at Georgia, so I'm here in Athens, Georgia, about an hour east of Atlanta. Um, I studied accounting. I wanted to quit, Ryan. I, I'm not. I'm a. <laughs> I'm. I'm not a traditional accountant in the way I'm wired. Uh, thankfully, my dad and some other advisors said, "Hey, bro, it's a top five accounting school in the country. You probably ought to hang in there and get it done." Yeah. And I did and get that degree. Uh, but you know, while I was in school, I was I was an I was an eBay guy. So I think my e-commerce roots were. It was back 2000 three, four, five, six, and was buying and selling parts to build guitars because I was a musician. I thought that'd be awesome. And um, and so my entrepreneurial journey started about almost a decade later. So I started, I got, got to join, I was in grad school. I was uh, studying finance as an MBA uh, and had the opportunity to to join a healthcare startup, the one you mentioned, Care to Continue in 2012. We had a good run, zero to 100-ish employees in about four years. And then- That's 25 a year, man. You break that down, that's a lot of growth. And, uh, well, in like 50 of them were in a year. So 20, 2013 was a bad year because we didn't make any money. 2014 was a bad year because we made money. It was just kind of like from little to just chaos, you know? And, yeah, to keep hiring, man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and literally at the beginning of 2014, it was me, and four, and then by the end of the year, it was me and 50. And so it was just, that was a crazy wow. year. Now it was yeah. also a very labor intensive business. So I, I sold my interest in that business uh, 2017 and started seller accountant. So this is kind of me getting back to my roots in two important ways. One is that I've loved e-commerce again, since I was in college. 
and I wanted to get back into it. And two, I'm actually, I was passionate about healthcare because my grandparents had had a bad experience in a nursing home and I want to try to solve the problem, but I'm a finance guy. Like, you know, my degrees in accounting and my MBA right. in finance. And so I wanted to build a business that somehow connected those two kind of arenas and, you know, had a buddy of mine tell me, Hey, you know, all that stuff you're buying on Amazon. I don't know if you know this, but it's not Amazon. It's a, uh, other guys and gals. And so I was like, what? So we took a look at it, decided to start the business. And, you know, Seller Accountant is, is still a pretty small firm, about 20 employees. We serve, you know, somewhere around 75, 80 e-commerce sellers. That's awesome. So yeah, so you, you're you growing, like, it's not just you, you're talking about like behind the scenes, like it's you and 20 other people who are doing accounting work. So wh what does that mean by accounting work? Like, let's be a little more granular, because I say accounting work, I'm like, I give you my like books and I go here, like pay taxes or pay VAT, GST, whatever that looks like. And then like, uh, we'll, we'll see you in like a quarter, however often, like the counting work is always like someone's in a room and they're doing numbers or budgets or things like that. What's that look like for an e-commerce accountant? Yeah, it's a, it's a super great question. So most of your accounting interactions as adults are going to be just filing taxes, being compliant, let's stay out of jail and, and you know, yeah. the IRS or don't get the government on you or something uh, like that. Yeah, that's right. Canada or EU. If I can keep these guys off my back, then I win. Right. And so that's not us. In fact, that's the part of accounting that we don't, I have a CPA who does my taxes. I don't even do my <laughs> Exactly. I am extremely focused. I, uh, we only do two things. We do bookkeeping and we do fractional CFO. And what that means is for sellers who have crested some amount of revenue where this has become a business and not just a hobby, uh, they're going to need what's called accrual or a investor grade set of financials where they actually need to be able to know how much money they made last month. So any of you guys out there, they're kind of scaling a business. If you've had that moment, you're like, I have no idea if I actually made money last month or not. I have no idea. And, and so when that question hits, our role is to come in and first of all, kind of wipe the mud off the windshield, right? Bring clarity to the bookkeeping, kind of a next yeah. level bookkeeping. And then for about a third of our clients, they also want that kind of strategic financial partner, almost like a coach where me and the other CFO partners on the team will literally say, hey, you want a seven figure exit in 24 months? Here's where you are today. You need to raise capital. You need to get your stuff in order, get your packet optimized. You need to review your portfolio to see which SKUs are winners, which ones are losers. And then um, and then we'll help you go to market. So that's the CFO side of what we do. Um, I love it, man. It's fun. It's a fun business to be in. That's awesome. So what's what's kind of like the like the scale of your, your business? You're, you said in that kind of intro, 20,000, that's monthly, I'm assuming. Um, and then you're doing like a half a million dollars in terms of like, Revenue? Are you talking about just selling on dot com, or are we talking about like multiple marketplaces around the world, not just on Amazon, but also like on Shopify or other other uh, you know marketplaces as well? Is that the scalability you're talking about as well? Yeah. So for us, our focus is e-commerce, but that could be any number of sales channels that are delivered online. So obviously, one of the one or more of the Amazon marketplaces, plus probably Shopify, are the dominant. I mean, I would be surprised if those two channels some combination of Amazon and Shopify are probably maybe 85% of the total revenue that we service. Yeah. How dominant those players are, but you know, Walmart, eBay, you know, the artist formerly known as jet.com. I mean, all these different channels that you might use. Oh, jet.com. I remember when jet.com was the, the bell, the ball. And then the news broke. It was like, what is it acquired for $2 billion? And everyone's like, this is it. Everyone watch out jet.com coming for you. I remember the ads. I remember everything. And that was, 
2014. That was not that long ago. And now what? Uh, they were like the failed the failed acquisition of Walmart. That's super sad now. But hey, they got absorbed by um, Walmart. So now it's Walmart Plus. Here we go. Uh, yeah. But anyways, go. so so quick opinion. What's the worst channel to deal with in terms of financials? Well, the, Walmart has three different APIs. And so their traditional distributor API is probably the right. worst one. Um, uh, Walmart's, uh, so trying to get, understand, for instance, I had a client that just realized that Walmart was, uh, they were getting overcharged for a shipping fee and we had to try to generate a report of which units were actually sold over the last six months. And it was an absolute nightmare. So Walmart's bad. eBay's getting better, but it's not great. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the ones that are, uh, everyone complains about Amazon, but once you figure out Amazon, it's actually the most consistent and Shopify also has fairly consistent data. Um, yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, again, we're not here to dog on Walmart. I think Walmart has a future in e-commerce. Yeah. I think they are Amazon's greatest competitor, but their data sets right now are pretty bad. Yeah. It, I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, when, when you're building it out and that's, you have so many different ways to test everything. And I think that's why Amazon is so consistent is, Hey, find out what works and, you know, give that standard template to everyone and, and kind of like let them run with it. What, what's different. So, Apart from running books on e-commerce, what has changed over the last, you know, five plus years or what, what has changed in terms of like financials for uh, sellers that they really should be like super aware of? Like, is it sales tax? Is it like, what is it? What are those things that you, you're kind of like shining light on those things uh, for yeah. sellers? So when we started the business a little over three years ago, it's funny you mentioned Stephen Pope because my one of my first blog or video interviews with, with him. And, and the thing we talked about literally at the beginning of 2018 was this um, coming tide of, of consolidation, especially in the Amazon universe. And that was one of my first thoughts was, gosh, there's so much fragmentation that I think we're going to see smarter capital, smarter money getting involved. You know, fast forward here three years and we've got, what is it, 50 or 60 of the aggregator players that are aggressively acquiring Amazon and other e-commerce brands. So that's that's the first kind of supernova that's happening right now is your, your customer for your financials or for your books is not Uncle Sam anymore. It's not just the IRS. Your customer is a sophisticated financial investor who is measuring your package against every other investment in the world. And so you're going to have to up your game. You got to be able to defend your the big things, sales, cost of goods sold, advertising, overhead. So that's the first thing that's changed. And you mentioned the other one is obviously in the middle of 2018, the sales tax universe kind of got flipped on its head with Wayfair. And, you know, it's, Ryan, I, to be honest with you, I think that was much more stressful in 2018 than it is now, right? So if you're, <laughs> if you're a marketplace seller, eBay, Walmart, uh, Amazon, uh, this is largely something in your rearview mirror that you don't care a lot about unless you're five plus million a year in revenue. And if you are primarily direct to consumer, meaning Shopify, WooCommerce, Magenta, or, or your big commerce, something that is your primary channel, mm -hmm. then this is a, still a major concern for you because as your, as they call it, Nexus, no one knew what the heck Nexus was five years ago, right? And so now everyone's like, oh yeah, Nexus, that really stupid technical term that the Supreme Court added in to help us define sales tax jurisdiction. If you're a growing direct-to-consumer brand, meaning your funnel is not a marketplace like Amazon, you got a problem right now. You got to learn how to deal with sales tax and understanding how that data works is important because 
the investors care and you don't want to lose money on the back end because you haven't done the right stuff. Yeah. Or paid your taxes or anything like that. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that was the thing when we were in 2014, I think like it was really Amazon. People weren't paying taxes in Amazon. They're like, yeah, no sales tax. And now you obviously have to start doing that depending on your, your shipping location. But that was the big thing with uh, like just general websites of any deal or anything like that. They're like, if you're located in these places, like apart from like, we will not ship for free to like Hawaii or uh, Alaska or something crazy like that. And then it's like, if you live in these States, you will be subject to sales tax or something like that, or like excluded, like once it became the wave. And that was such a headache to always remember those caveats of like, I don't know like what actually I'm paying for. And like at the end of the day, I think people are like, oh, that's just taxes. But it's frustrating when that's what you're used to as a seller. And then you're like, well, I have to collect that on either my own channel or I have to reconcile it later with another company if they're collecting that as well. So that's interesting. So what is the, so I know like our topic for today is more like, uh, velocity and different ways to be profitable and you guys are i'm assuming getting more into like the realm of like aggregators and like you said you said 50 i know like I, the list has gotten a bit as big as like 100 but i think like 50 legitimate like i say legitimate like pretty helpful yeah. have severe money behind them even as severe as like the last month or two i think it's already raised two billion dollars in just financial like backing one of them being like obviously thrasio maybe like back to back with thrasio but like Elevate Brands, uh, $55 million recently. I know lots of other uh, capital funding, fundraising rounds. Is that exciting for you as a uh, as someone who, who's dealing with numbers and has clients that say like, hey, this is like your multiple now, but this is what it could be in a couple of years, as long as we keep the books clean. That like almost, I would think, keeps you in business like for more people, right? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, I mean, yeah, for, for sure, it's never been more important to have kind of more financial intelligence to kind of up your game financially. And so, yes, the aggregators, what they've done is they've kind of accelerated. So so what the pandemic accelerated consumer behavior where people are just more interested in e-commerce. That's a, um, hate the pandemic, but I'm grateful to be in e-commerce where we're an industry that benefited. Um, the aggregators, which if you think about it, are in part a subset of the pandemic because smart money had a really bad year in mm -hmm. traditional bricks and mortar retail last year. And so the, res the response of these really smart private equity firms to say, huh, retail in general didn't have a great year, but this tiny subset of retail called e-commerce is explosive. I wonder what would happen if we invested some of these dollars or, you know, other currencies into these kinds of businesses. And so again, it's just kind of, um, fortunate that we're in the midst of it, but you're right. It has created the need to think about our business the way an investor thinks about a business. And so you said the word velocity a minute ago. I think one of the biggest mindset shifts that sellers need to go through is they have to understand real profitability. So let me give you two things. One is it can't just be, I think I kind of sort of know profitability. You actually have to present your sales lined up with your expenses so that you can understand on a cruel basis, on an accrual basis, how much money did I make last month or last quarter or last year? That's the first thing. And the second thing is just knowing profitability is not enough. Uh, you, you gotta start thinking about it like your business is a machine. You put a token in the machine, how many tokens spit out at the end of a year? In other words, return on investment and even more importantly, return on inventory investment and even more importantly, return on inventory investment over the course 
of a year. And so that metric that no one's ever talking about is for every dollar I put into my machine, how effective is my machine at producing good news for me at the end of a single year? And, and so the, the variables that drive this, and I'm, I'm trying not to get too technical here, but profit tells me how happy I am. By the way, the most brilliant accounting professor I ever had, Ryan, when I was an undergraduate student, could take the most absurdly, disgustingly complicated concepts and turn them into smiley face, frowny face comparisons. Right. So, so profit tells me how smiley I am every time I sell my product. Mm-hmm. The velocity from which, in other words, how many times per year I can use that same dollar over and over again because I've got good inventory velocity, that tells me how many times I get to smile each year, right? And so you kind of right. put those together, profit times inventory turns per year tells me how effective I am at generating um, return on my investment. And so as a firm, as a CFO practice, seller accountant is crazy lazy or focused right now and taking every product line and every skew and saying, huh, is that an effective product line? I know the margins felt okay, but but we only sell one unit every five months. This is a bad product line. We need right. to all of a sudden introduce velocity and kind of cash requirement into our math problem for deciding how happy we are. And so I just encourage you guys to do that too. Really think about velocity and profit. That's awesome because I, I never think about like how often you're almost like rounding the bases, right? I'm a baseball player uh, yes. by definition. Um, when I, yeah, you know, how many times are you going around like the bases essentially and you're hitting home every time you hit home, you're getting a point, like it's putting your token closer to winning uh, right. in that capacity. But when you're talking about the velocity in terms of like how many times you're doing that per year, I never look at it that way because how, how aggregators are uh, di- dictating your you know, your valuation uh, is going to depend on like how often you're moving product and then what that looks like per year. Like you say, if you're only reordering stock once a year, I heard it, I think from Steve, he, again, I go back to Steven because his most uh, recent uh, conversation, but he said, you know, when you are, how did he phrase this? He said, when you're, when you're selling goods, I'm, I'm trying to think of the actual like point I was trying to make, but anyways, when you're selling to like a, an aggregator or whatnot, you're trying to dictate like this is going to be profitable, not for you now, but also is going to do a quicker, quicker return on your investment after that first year. And I just read an article on Thrasio saying, hey, listen, like these are the ways you can get paid out. Like you can get your payout at the end of a year, like almost like you hit all these markers and things like that, or just a cash payout or just say like uh, guarantee profitability or at least hitting your plateau year over year. So that being said, why, why is it a year? Why are they looking at a year? Why not 15 months? Why not? Or like 16 months? Why not two years? Like what, why, why one year? Uh, Yeah, I get, it's a good question. I think it's just an objective metric. I think, I think the point is sometimes if we're kind of hustler traders, like if we're like, for instance, the eBay days, right? Mm. I was looking like, let's say, cause I, I love baseball. So baseball cards, let's say I found like a Barry Bonds rookie card I bought. And I'm like, I'm going to be able to, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to 10 X this baby and make a bunch of money when I sell it on eBay here in a few months. Right. But what if I don't sell it? What if I have to hold on to that card for 25 years, which is sometimes what happens in that particular market. The, I might love Barry Bonds enough to need that baseball card and I'm happy to have it on my shelf or wherever it is. But if I don't love Barry Bonds baseball cards on my shelf, then I've made a terrible investment because the annualized return on my whatever it is, it took me so many years to sell it. And so we got to kind of 
stop treating our products like babies and say, okay, wait a minute, I'm investing in this asset machine. Mm-hmm. And I just want to know, you know, and the reason we use an annual terminology is that um, the banks do, right? You always kind of have an, an annual interest rate when you when you look at your credit card or your, or your bank loan. And so I want you to act like you're a banker, brand owner, and say, I'm going to invest or have to borrow a dollar that's going into my machine. I'm going to get that dollar back plus some return on my investment over the course of a year. And I want to make sure that I put a time limit on it. If, you, if somebody was smart enough to do it in 15 months and was always consistent, that would be helpful also because it doesn't matter. The, the date time is arbitrary. It's having a consistent timeline where you're measuring product A over a year versus product B for a year. And I think that's probably what we've landed on, on a year is kind of the most common way to look at it. Is that is that hard to like... Oh, not predicts. Is that hard to forecast though? For if you're, if I'm, if I'm Thrasio, I put myself in this situation. Like the, there's too many external factors for me to look at in terms of like, why is why is widget A profitable in 2020? Well, it could be a hundred ways. No one went out of their home. It's because like they had inventory. They didn't stock out. Like there, there's all these variables where it doesn't make sense. Like the the numbers didn't maybe a lineup or they're inflated. I say inflated because it, it could be like a product just booms because of, you know, one reason or another, but it also brand tanks because of one reason or another. We talked about neck pillows. If I'm someone who's willing to sit on neck pillows for potentially another year, that, 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 that topic could come back hot and furious, like anything in travel or like outdoors, it could come back hot and furious. What, what what are those different like factors when you're looking at like not just numbers like the external like one-offs does that make sense it totally makes sense and i think that's again where we can kind of get in trouble because we can we can be so bullish but by the way if you own an asset that you're going to be able to sell for 20 times what you paid for it and you just got to wait a year mm-hmm. there's a good chance that you're not going to do much better than that return on your investment right i mean so i think i'm not saying this is the, by the way when you buy real estate you hold it for a few years, you expect a larger return on your investment, but you're glad and happy to wait five years for it. What I'm saying is that your products that you invest in are just another class of asset. And so if you're trying to scale a business, your mindset needs to be a little bit closer to like Warren Buffett's mindset or like a crafty real estate investor's mindset might be. And not like, ooh, this is a super cool product. And I think at some point, maybe kind of sort of it'll come back. The challenge is, is that most of us aren't already made of this money. We're having to borrow the cash. We're paying mm-hmm. interest on it. So in other words, this asset that's sitting in my warehouse is actually getting kind of less valuable if you think about it, because I'm paying interest to have to borrow that money still. It's almost like a car, right? Like even though the car is cool, like the more time passes, the less valuable it becomes because of time is, I mean, time never stops. So just like product inventory, like customers will continue to ebb and flow. There's no predictability, but as long as it sits in a warehouse, like its value instantly becomes almost like a loss right out the gate. Like you're at a net loss because you've invested all the inventory, you have to move it, but obviously make that markup. So yeah, I was going to show you an example because I think part of this is yeah. um, it, it com, uh, computing this can be a little challenging. Let's see if this works. Application window. Can you see this little Excel spreadsheet here? Yep, I got it. Let me add it to our uh, stream right now. And boom, magic. There we go. Oh, that is so beautiful. That's such a thing of beauty. Okay, so <laughs> you guys are looking at an Excel spreadsheet. Leave it to an accountant to turn this into a spreadsheet, right? So <laughs> I want to teach you two things really quickly. First of all, let me go to this little intro slide here and just say, 
this is what I just said a second ago. I want you to start thinking about happiness, financial happiness. Obviously, there's more important right. things than money. But I want you to start thinking about financial happiness through the lens of what I'm going to get in profit when I sell something. But I can't just view that in a vacuum. I need to do that times how often I can turn the inventory. And actually, the profit metric that works out better here, you guys have seen this in some of the tools you use for return on inventory investment. Mm -hmm. And I'll show you this more in a minute. Return on inventory investment times my annual turns is going to give me this weird metric called return on working capital and an inventory return or inventory turns to be clear for everyone who's listening to is how many times you reorder that said skew or ASIN, correct? That's exactly right. And let me, gotcha. let me give you an actual example here. So I've got two uh, brands that are, you know, fake, fake names here, rounded numbers, but real data. So brand one, Amy sells 3 million a year. Her, her, her cost, what it takes her to actually buy the product is 1.9 million. Um, I'm not going to get into the technicalities of post-advertising gross profit, but let's just say this. How much money did you make selling this product after advertising? I've paid my Amazon fees. I've bought the product itself. And after I pay for my PPC spend, what's left? And so for her, that number is 600,000 or 20%, um, mm -hmm. a 20% PAG. That means it's kind of like a if you're an accounting geek, kind of a contribution margin number, everything else on my PL is going to be salaries or SAS or that kind of thing. Now, the mm -hmm. other thing is interesting. So, so PAG is equal to what's left after advertising divided by my sales, right? So for her, that's 20%. The other most important profit number is called return on inventory investment. I like you use the baseball analogy. I turned the crank. I had an at bat. I had mm -hmm. to invest this $1.9 million for some number of weeks or months before I could sell the goods. I got my 1.9 million back plus 600,000. In other words, my return on inventory investment, let me show you how you do this math here, is 600,000 divided by my land of cost of goods sold or 32%. So basically you got your investment back and then you added $600,000 to your quote unquote bank. That's right. And, and then to make it like super simple numbers, I got my dollar of inventory back plus 32 cents. In other words, my return on inventory investment was I got a dollar back plus I got 32 cents in profit, right? For the one time I turned it. But that's not enough to tell me how happy I am because I need to know, like you said, how many times I'm reordering that unit or how many times I'm turning that inventory per year. Amy's got a smoking business. She's turned this almost 10 times in a year. She's got extremely... Go ahead. So cutting, so that $600,000, 10 times. So it's basically 10 times or be $6 million. In, is that the right math to do $6 million in profit? Well, she only made 600,000 in profit, but here's the, here's the math. How many dollars of investment did it take me to make this? Oh, gotcha. It makes it only took her 200,000. In other words, she's moving things so quickly that her return on working capital. And so there's two ways to get to this math and then I'll stop being nerdy math here. <laughs> take your some objective measure of profit. I like advertise, after advertising profit. Right. And I divide that by the amount of inventory that I'm having to hold. How much money am I having to invest or borrow in inventory? 600,000 divided by 200,000 gives me three. Mm -hmm. um, the exact same math for those of you who, for those of you nerds out there, 32% return on investment times 9.5 turns per year also equals exactly 3.00. It's the exact same math problem. Here's why this is so important. For Amy, every year, for every dollar she puts in her business, she gets that dollar back plus $3 and zero cents in profit. And so if she were to come to me and say, I want to, 
I want to double my profit next year, I could tell her exactly how much working capital she needs to raise, how much debt she needs to raise, how much investment she needs to make because she has a three to one ratio. If she wants to make a million dollars in profit, she's going to have to have a third of that or $333,000 in inventory on her balance sheet. Does that make sense, Ryan? Yep, that makes sense. Comparing Amy to Baker. Baker, he, he's he's okay. His margins after advertising, a little better than Amy's. Return on investment, a little better than Amy's. But look at this inventory management, much much slower. And here's the point. For Baker, if you are an old school fund, you would value his business. Now, obviously she's bigger. I'm not talking about volume here, but you would value his business higher than hers because he has slightly hard, higher profit margins. But because he turns inventory only two and a half times per year, his return on investment is a little over a dollar. What that means is for the year, for every dollar that Baker puts in this business, he gets his dollar back plus $1.12 in profit, not mm. as good. And so his business, and just trust me with this, his business is three times riskier than Amy's because she has to have a third the amount of debt for each dollar of profit. I, I don't know if that makes sense. I'm talking in technicalities here, but- No, that makes sense. So when you're an aggregator, then you look at this and you say, listen, like we can regain our investment almost quicker to Amy's brand, thus being more valuable because of the turn- in velocity of goods. Yep. And let me give you an example that includes some funds because we had some aggregator funds purchase businesses that would look eerily similar to these numbers on your screen right now mm -hmm. at very high multiple valuations. And they're both extremely good businesses. But my, my thought here, so first of all, they both have good margins. They both have good return on inventory investment. The only difference is that the first business here doesn't take as much capital. It's more efficient. I don't have to put as many tickets in the machine to make my profit each year. The second business, eh, both making about 6 million a year. We're very happy with that. Mm -hmm. But the second business, while still extremely strong, and in fact has some of the best return on inventory investment I've ever seen, right? But right. because of how hard it is for them to move their inventory, it's gonna require a lot more cash for the aggregator to run this second business. Therefore, right. it's riskier. And so, again, you know, you can make it as complicated as you want to. How do I? Um, I got it. I'll take it off. Oh, yep. cool. Okay, awesome. So, yeah, interesting. I, I've never seen it. I've never had it broken down that way in terms of like how quick. It, I mean, again, if, as an aggregator, at the end of the day, their investment, they have to make smart investments into just like any sort of like, acquire, I should say, like you have to say this money is going to be spent. And after so much time, we can quickly regain our investment, but then also make a profit in that regards. And I know it's always like we had Jim man with Thrasio on and he said, you know, 20% like uh, profit or like growth um, over, you know, what they are already doing that they're building out for these brands. If you're talking hundred brands, 14,000 products, it's probably more than that. Since I last talked with them, you're talking about a stupid amount of money in terms of like just taking it into, Initially, from what it was, not if everything is just growing 20%, much more, I'm assuming for mo most brands, that's an insane amount of money that they're, you know, that they're investing, but then also can get back in profit. Yeah. And part of the reason I'm sharing this with you guys is I think this is what's next. I, I'm saying this, I've had a few of the aggregators have me become a paid consultant as they're learning how to value these businesses. And what I, what I would like to say to the audience is 
as these investors learn more about the cash cycle and the amount of money that's sitting in inventory for these brands that they've acquired, and Thrasio is one of them, but, the, but a bunch of these guys have acquired a ton of brands here. What they're going to realize really quickly here, Ryan, is that some businesses feel worse than others. And they're going to take a close look at it and they're say, oh, this one feels worse because I'm having to spend twice as much of my hard-earned raised cash to run this one as I am on this one. And so my point is, if you want to get premium multiple, Q3, Q4 of 2021, your task is to understand your profit and optimize around that profit, um, I guess call it profit effectiveness per year, that return on working capital. And so you got to understand how much you're making and you got to get better at managing. And by the way, if you were to look at that, that sheet again that I was showing you, the reality is you might either have a profit problem or a supply chain problem. And so the key here, so just again, kind of looking at what you see here, Oh, we just had Tyler accidentally uh, remove himself from the stream. So we'll wait on Tyler before he removes back. In the meantime, uh, if you have questions for uh, <laughs> just simply accidentally exiting a browser, we'll just completely ruin everything. But for those of you who are watching, Tyler accidentally removed himself from the stream. So until he gets himself back, hopefully uh, every all the math makes sense. So if you have questions, there's Tyler again. So if you have questions, make sure that, I was gonna say, it's just an accidental, you get in a browser out of the way and you accidentally cut yourself off the podcast. You know, so. <laughs> Apple has this great like two finger swipe right. Right. And oh, that's a, back, that's a back functionality. Yes. Yeah. I hate that. I've done that before. And that's tricky. <laughs> I've exited myself from my own podcast before. That was one of my things too. So, so, sorry about that. If you, if you wanted to uh, show my little goofy spreadsheet here again, I'll just show you. Oh yeah. You, you, you can definitely do that for sure. And I was saying for everyone who's listening, if you have questions about like how, how the math works out, uh, we're talking about profitability and how many times you have to turn that to help value your business and how it look better on paper to aggregators and investors. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So please, if you have questions, I'd love to love to chat with you about this. This can feel, this doesn't need to be as complicated as, as it seems like it is. It's just an opportunity to learn more about your business so that you can understand. Because to be honest with you, you probably have some feelings. Like I'm feeling stressed out about cash flow, or I'm feeling stressed out about how long inventory ends up sitting, <laughs> you know, um, sitting around before I sell it. And here, I'm actually going to pull back up that application window. Here. Yeah, sure. Sure. One more thing. So, you know, having a good analysis wing for for your business will help you know why you're feeling pain. So, let me just show you an example here um, that'll give you some insight. So, looking at this company that I'm codenamed Montana here, I think my point here is that you either normally have a March. Oh, let's just, so this seller is going to look at their return on working capital and say, "Oh, that's a little low." Uh, Tyler's telling me the industry average is a little over two, which I am. And now this is one and a quarter. Why is it low? And this yeah. gives it the opportunity to try to identify our problem. Is our problem a margin problem? In other words, our product isn't differentiated enough or we're not charging enough for it. Or is our problem a supply chain problem? And clearly when you look at Montana here, our inventory terms are maybe the one that are having the most outsized negative impact. And so instead of freaking out about everything in my business, that allows me to get focused and say, okay, you know what, for the next quarter, I'm going to see if I can extend my payment terms with my suppliers. I'm going to see if I can uh, cut some SKUs that aren't moving. I might have some dead weight that I need to get off the balance sheet. I'm going to really focus my energy on the supply chain because it looks like my margins are pretty good. And so that's my point that I want to make to you guys is you can't fix everything at once being focused and using the data to, you know, 
to point you in the right direction. So that, that's all I had to say about that. We, you can, you can. Yeah. What, what's the typical turn that someone needs to do in order to see like some sort of incremental growth or value, I should say, like, is that two? Is that three? Is that, you know, I know it depends on pro, uh, inventory, but what is it going to typically come out to for most categories? Does that make yeah, sense? I think a great target for most product categories is about quarterly. If you can turn your inventory about four times a year, that's a pretty good place to be. And in fact, uh, we have sellers that are much higher than that. And they're actually, and, and the reason they're much higher is that they're stocking out constantly, right? So that's the thing you got to worry about is there's, there is a spot where you're like, oh boy, my inventory turns are outrageous, but dear, but dear, but dear Lord, I was out of stock for 65 days last year. And so there's a lot of opportunity cost. And so we found that a pretty good sweet spot is somewhere between three and five, maybe three and a half to four turns per year. What, what do you tell people when it's no longer, uh, order inventory on demand or like on, you know, when needed it's, it's uh order inventory on a yearly basis. I mean, this might've even been from Steven again mm -hmm. yesterday. Again, like he threw a lot at me and I was like, I had to like <laughs> sleep at night. I think I woke up in a panic because of something he said, because of like the next Armageddon that he's kind of predicting what's coming in terms of like online or e-commerce or whatnot. And that kind of got me in a panic. But anyways, he, he said, he's, he said the people who did the best last year were obviously those who had inventory for the entire year. And that's what he suggests yeah. is order it for the entire year. But I feel like that's a, that's not always the not safest route, but that's not always like a reasonable way for a beginner seller or like kind of a scaling person to order that much inventory and potentially sit on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. I mean, I, again, every business is different. And if you're small, if you're, and this is just a rule of thumb, it doesn't apply to every product blend. But if you're normally, if you're less than a million a year in revenue, being as simple as you possibly can, being as lean and mean as you possibly can, and focusing as much of your energy on finding the products that solve the best problems. If I'm a CFO for you and you're small, I'm going to say focus there. But as you get right. beyond 1.5, maybe 2.5 million U.S. In, in sales each year, you're going to inherit some supply chain problems. They're going to force you to get more sophisticated. You might have to pick up a software to help you manage supply chain. You might need to pick up a 3PL partner to help you um, have more stuff in the States ready to go because Amazon is not a great place to store stuff long term. And then again, when you reach 10 million, 15 million a year in revenue, you have a whole new set of problems related to, wow, am I at a point where I need to have my own native warehouse and learn how to manage a team? And so just be ready for your your role as the CEO of your company to evolve as your company grows. And don't freak out. You're going to look at the metrics and be like, you know what? This is a problem. What's the lowest, laziest man fruit, right? That I can pick that'll make this better. And to be honest with you, eight out of 10 times, it's sending an email to my supplier saying, hey, I need help. Can I get better terms from you? I've been paying on time. I've been a great partner. Can you give me some relief, right? Or <laughs> Yeah. Right. And, and sometimes, you know, even even your solution on ping pong, right? Like having having better financing where you're not giving up points on the on the exchange. I mean, there you may realize that there's some low hanging fruit opportunities to improve your cash cycle by not having to pay people until later <laughs> getting right. earlier that have a gigantic impact on your business as a whole. And, that, and that's what we tell always is like when, when you pay in local currency, there, there's a couple of problems you solve there is it's quicker. You get your inventory released quicker, which is again, goes to the mentality of how do I turn my cycle quicker um, instead of like holding it on, waiting for 
money to clear so they can then release inventory to you. You know, you have days that you're just waiting on it to arrive, but if you do it right and you're paying a local currency, you're saving it. This is the math problem I always do. If you're a $10 million seller, or let's say a million dollar seller in a marketplace like Canada, for example, and you save a percentage point on your FX. Again, this is the nerdy side, the money side of us talking. If you save just a percentage point um, on that, you're talking about $10,000 a month. Then you're talking about $120,000 a year in savings. And again, it's not a tangible number. It's not like you're, it's on, it's not like you are receiving $120,000, but on your sheet over the course of a year, and you are selling your business on a three-time multiple, you just instantly added $360,000 to your brand valuation just by saving 1% on FX. So it's stuff like that where it's like easy layups to make yourself a bigger payday long-term down the road. So what, what are like the ways that people are just like, they're just not getting it. It's like the math is is there. It's just people are just constantly making the same mistakes over and over again. Is that inventory? Is that another area we haven't covered yet? No, um, that's a great question. I, I think one of the biggest areas that we haven't talked about yet that can be a mistake, especially if you want to exit at some point is, okay, so product developers are really good at thinking about their customer when they design their product, right? Mm -hmm. I'm holding a you know vacuum sealed cool cup from one of my clients here. They so thought cool. about me. Super cool, right? It's like replaces the solo cup. It keeps my water cool. It's very fashionable. It's nice. That's a cool product. We need to start engineering our business around its customer, which is going to be an investor someday. And so I just encourage you to take that same mindset that says, huh, I should make my cup feel like this and, you know, be safe at this temperature. And we're doing all this work to make sure that our products and our instructions and our packaging are optimized around what our customers want, keyword research and whatnot. Do the same thing for your business. And the way you do that is you start thinking, okay, wait a minute, given my category, given who I am as a product grouping, what's the best investor that's going to pay me the most money in two years for my business? Okay. I think it's an aggregator. Okay. Well, I'm over that hump. Now let me put the aggregator in the center of the room for a minute and say, what does she want? What is that CEO of an aggregator fund really looking for? Okay. They're looking for a coherent brand that addresses a specific problem. In other words, I don't want to have garlic press cup, pen, you know, heating pad. I want to have a coherent brand strategy. I want to have clean, profitable, the details on my, on my branding, do the brand right. I want to be, I want to be, have a high margin. Uh, if I can choose to have 20 profitable SKUs over 2000, okay, SKUs, I'm going to choose the 20. And so in other words, do the same thing you did with the cup that you're designing for your customers, engineer your business around your end game. And so I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that we see is that people wait until they're ready to go to market. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm burnout. I didn't, I don't want to do it anymore. Give me my money. And they have this business that doesn't have a coherent story that sells because the business itself is a brand, even mm -hmm. though the products are individual. And so that's one issue. And the second one is kind of related to what we do. Having your financials be defendable in due diligence. Um, now is the time to stop putting your, you know, country club expenses on your, like, like do as much as you can. Cause here's what Start I was paying thinking. off your debt, everyone. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like commingled expenses where you're doing your personal stuff through it because your tax guy said, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying open another LLC and okay. run your, your vacations through it. Okay. What I'm saying is that you're going to win some of the overhead battles that you fight, 
but you're not going to win all of them. I mean, when you're trying to get an investor to add them back, to do an add back. And so I win every battle. It's almost like you're talking about baseball again. If I walk the guy, he's never going to hit a home run on me, right? Mm -hmm. And was, if I can just not spend the money and actually be profitable, I don't have to argue whether that was a valid ad back or not. And so start thinking about that now and have your financials in order and have your records in, in a clean packet so that when that investor the first time, because think about this, when you, Ryan, you and I are like this, we walk into a car lot, we're going to buy a car. We make a snap judgment in about 30 seconds as yeah. to whether we trust that guy that walks out there to sell us something. And, and it's the same with your investor. They're going to look at your financials and be like, oh my God, these are a mess. They're yeah. going to look at your website. Oh my gosh, these guys haven't updated this in three years. They're going to look at your Amazon listing and say, oh my gosh, these guys have pirates on them. And so do the little things before you go to market so that that initial emotional reaction, you think these guys are hyper-rational because they're venture capital funds. They're not. They're emotional like you and I are. They're making buyer decisions based on anxiety. If you're low anxiety, I'm going to pay more for you. If you're high anxiety, I'm probably going to walk away because there's too many good deals out there. So what, when you're telling people, if you're like helping, you're not, you're not brokering. So you're just helping people assist. So obviously if you're planning to exit, you're helping people. Is there, what's, is there a good, the best way to get paid out you think in your mind? Because I know as a seller, like this is more, this is more like to each individual seller because like they have so much equity and stake and sweat equity, I say, and emotional ties to it. You are trying to say like, what are the best terms? Now, obviously that's, again, we talked about the cash up front. This is the payout over the course of a year, or you even have like, um, it, it's multi-year terms. And it's kind of, again, I was reading this on Thrasio's blog most recently. Like, of course they want you to go directly to them. Yeah. What, but people don't understand like, what's a good offer? What are good terms? Like, what are the different like financial ways? How are you having those conversations with your clients? Like, I'm assuming a couple of them approached you if not already people have exited, assumingly. Yeah. Um, so what, what those conversations look like on a, as a almost not bookkeeper, but like from a person with numbers as they're like, I, I can't lie to you. This is what it says. Like, yeah. Yeah. what, what is it from that perspective? So I think your question is, so yeah, as a CFO, I've had several of my clients and a couple of them get 20 plus million dollar exits here, even in the last couple of months. That's and awesome. I think, um, yeah, thank you. I'm really thankful to have been a part of their journey. Right. It's wonderful. And uh, you know, talking about deal structure, what's the best way to get paid? Obviously, you love to get paid now if you can, right? Um, but that's less realistic if you want that top multiple because of what we know. Thrasio and all the other guys that are raising cash out there are limited in their capital and they would love they would be very happy to pay you more to de-risk it a little bit and say, "Hey, if the business continues to do well, we're going to pay you more." And so longer term, yeah it's a very personal decision. It really is. I mean, there are, there are, I'll give you an example. I, I had a guy in a completely different business where we, we talked to him about selling it and the banker came to him and said, dude, your business is worth half a million dollars. And he's like, well, see, I can't charge any more than that. The banker said it's only worth half a million dollars. And we were like, wait a second. What if you did a seller note for another hundred thousand? In other words, the guy wants to pay you 600,000. The bank's only going to give you 500. Now, would you, would you take that extra hundred thousand if it's a little bit risky because the guy's got to pay you back directly? Well, he's like, well, when you put it that way, of course I would. And so I just want to encourage you guys, look at the bigger picture. How do I get maximum value for this thing that I've worked so hard to build? 
And then, you know what, to the extent that I'm going to let them pay me later, it's a trust discussion. Do I, do I believe in the, even if, it, and not, not everyone's going to sell to an aggregator, but whoever's buying my business, do I think that they can do it as well or if not better than I do? If you know you're peeking under the hood of your own business and you know that things are kind of flimsy and you're worried that the market might crash, then take less money and get them to pay you now, right? Great. But if you think there's tremendous upside and you just needed the capital and the expertise and the focus and you feel like you're partnering with the right fund, let them pay you some later. And in fact, you know, some of these guys that are really sophisticated would love to roll up equity and just own a piece of the aggregator that's normally not happening, Ryan, because that's okay. too hard for the aggregators to manage. You know, it's a lot easier to do an earnout, which is what you alluded to, than it is to do a roll-up where now I own a piece of this other guy's company. And right. so it's personal. There's no right or wrong way. It's just you got to know what you want and you got to be bold enough to ask for it. And then you got to be reasonable and be like, well, I kind of get that. If you can hold on to his cash for a year, he can help me grow this. And we both make more money, you know, it makes sense. Right. And before the top of the hour, I guess my other questions would be, since we're talking about it, is there, is there a, like a trend or maybe more like, a, do you have forethought in terms of like the data? Cause we're data people. You, you kind of see where things are starting to ebb and flow. Like this whole, like burning a path and everyone's kind of falling behind Thrasio and like heyday and perch and people like that. And there's more people that are kind of like off shooting and, and emphasizing and trying to do like more their niche. Mm -hmm. What do you kind of expect to come from like a wave of, you know, there's money being had with these brands. Is it more investment into the area? Is it more like retail putting more money and funds? Is it more acquisitions in terms of like, because I don't think this is the case. Maybe this will like help me come to my question of, I don't think it's going to be just like 10 people that are running a market. It's not like a PNG, like a, you know, Johnson, Johnson, people like that are always like 10 companies are fighting for your dollar. I don't think that's what it will be, but what are your kind of like, where does this go? Like, where do you think as a, a numbers person? Yeah. So the prognostication, and this is, I don't know if, Pope used the inning illustration with you yesterday. I didn't catch that particular episode, but I think everyone wants to know, are we in the second inning of this yeah. supernova of cash and acquisitions? And it's going to happen for four more years. Are we in the ninth inning? Are we somewhere in between? Right. And so I, uh, my opinion is that we're still very early in the acquisition cycle, but that some of these aggregators are not going to win. So there's two opposing forces. Yeah. E-commerce is not going anywhere. Buyer behavior is going to continue to trend in our direction, which is good for everybody. Mm -hmm. And smart capital and not so smart capital are going to continue to pour in, which are, I, I think, flushing up the values a little bit right now, maybe more than I would value them at as an investor. And almost as like inflation, yeah, almost like inflation. Bit. And so I would be very slow to make any decision out of fear as a seller. I think if you have a great brand and a good product, you need to feel pretty strong right now. And it's probably smart to start thinking about what your exit plan is, but I don't think you need to do it because you're panicked because it's about to disappear. I do think that 
two or three of the funds at some point, more than that, but two or three of the notable ones will probably fail. And failing will be quieter than you think it is. They will have acquired some assets. They will have paid too much for them. They will have figured out that they can't operate them as well as they can. And they'll probably sell to another fund or sell somewhere else quietly and lose a little money and move on. And as soon as that starts happening, the Wall Street kind of money that's propping them up is just going to slow down a little bit, Ryan. And mm -hmm. so the that's not going to mean anything except for if, if somebody is getting an irrationally high value right now, it's going to sober back down to reality. And so I don't know what this means for you and your brand. For me, if I had a great brand that was premium, 10 to 20 SKUs in a great category, making good money, and I was very Amazon focused right now, I would work my rear off for the next six months to optimize around that return on working capital. And I would at least shop the market. That was, that's what I would do. Yeah. If I were a brand that I felt like was going to have a five-year timeline, I would slow down and probably kick back and work on my Shopify or direct-to-consumer marketplaces. And I would wait for round one, at whenever it ends, to end and wait for round two. But that's that's how I would personally approach it. What about you, man? I'm curious. What do you think? <sighs> I've kind of come at it and this I, I think is really cool to see where the money is being spent because with money, you can innovate. So I see innovation happening in a couple of ways. It's either going to acquire a bunch of service providers. So I say this again in the sports term, call it a farm system, right? Mm -hmm. Call it a Thrasio buys a helium tin or a jungle scout or a, a solution out there. And you have a 3PL company or you build out your own and you start saying from endpoint to endpoint, we have you covered. So you, we help you get started and sell then we buy your brand like because you have the data, it's all floating in there from their own parent company, whether you want to call it that or not. But then also we can just buy it from you and exclusively give you maybe like a percentage point higher or half a percentage point higher than anyone else out there. So you're farming your own talent almost essentially. Because mm. this, this is the thing that you can't replicate is the sweat equity that a brand's going to put into it or someone's going to put into their own brand. So you can see that, you can see, what can we multiply? Like what's the actual value of the goods instead of the sweat equity? And that's like the one that I think a lot of people either overvalue or undervalue. So if it's the person, then that's great. If it's the product, then you can either replicate it or you can put that into your quote unquote formula and like grow it internationally and whatnot. So that's kind of what I see it potentially happening. Um, you know, that's in the FinTech world. People are always spending money, so it's not a bad thing. Uh, no. But yeah, it's just like engines in terms of like how you're going to help people move money all around the world. Um, commerce in general is just continuing to change quicker. It's faster. It's a little more like head jerk reactions. Yeah. And then that's where innovation comes from. So whoever is going to continue to innovate, yeah. this is kind of like where I see, you know, that's where the trend will go. Like Amazon, if it's, you know, something like what Amazon does, but its own marketplace, then that's fantastic. But mobile social commerce, it'll continue to all grow. I completely like, agree. <laughs> Ryan, quick thing. I just posted in our chat here. Um, yeah. We do an aggregate study every year where we're trying to get benchmarking. If anyone would be interested in participating anonymously, you're going to give us an email address because we're going to send you the study when we're done. We're going to, we got about $215 million right now in 2020 sales that uh, we're going to take, put in a big anonymous soup and say, how profitable is the average Amazon seller? Um, how dependent on Amazon are they? What are their other channels? How good are they at managing inventory? So that some of the things that Ryan and I talked about today, you can put in the context of the industry. I would very much appreciate it. If anyone wants to participate, feel free to add your data. Um, 
and we will send you a free copy of it here in a few weeks when we finish it. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm typing this out right here. Buy seller account, cool. Here you go. In the yeah, so everyone uh, in the show notes here, I will make sure that this gets put as well. But for the um, for everyone who's listening, go ahead and check out the show notes in terms of this link. Um, for those on uh, Crossover Commerce, again, our new page that we have up, make sure you like it. This is my quick plug for that. To participate in the Stay by Seller Account, go ahead to that forms. And again, anonymously uh, put what you think about the industry itself. That's really cool. And then also, uh, Tyler, real quickly, before we have to go at the top of the hour, before you relate to the next meeting or any meeting that's going on, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you or learn more about what you guys do? So just selleraccountant.com. You can find everything you need at the website, sellerAccountant.com. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Awesome. Yeah. So go ahead and check them out, guys. Like the link again is in the comments section. If you're watching this on social media, go ahead and click that, check them out, connect with Tyler and his team again on LinkedIn um, or on their Facebook pages as well. Tyler, thank you so much, man, for hopping on. This was super eye-opening when you can kind of put numbers to actual what it means in terms of like velocity and what it looks like in terms of exiting a business. I've had people in terms of like brokers and aggregators on the show. No one's put it in terms of like, this is how you do it. This is like the, the, the nuts that make, you know, put the dollar in and you get, you know, so many dollars out. This is how you do it quicker, efficiently. This is what it looks like. And mm. that's the math formula behind it. But yeah, you guys are doing, it sounds like you guys are doing awesome work with your business. I'm excited to see where you grow and continue to, uh, help out people, um, you know, exit the business or just like be more profitable online. Thanks buddy. Appreciate you having me. Take care. Yeah. Thanks man. So again, everyone for uh crossover commerce audience out there, thanks for joining us live on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Ryan Kramer, the host of this show, crossover commerce again, live four to five times per week. Go ahead and like us on our Facebook page, uh, Facebook page, crossover commerce by Ryan Kramer, uh, with Ryan Kramer, I should say, and you'll be notified of future episodes coming live. Uh, off tomorrow, but we're coming back fast and furious on Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern. So make sure you check us out there. We'll have Jeff Minenbach of No Limit Creative. We're going in the creative direction of everything. Um, how to make your brands stand out, how to make yourself more equitable. And he's going to talk about how he grew a business of 250 plus employees that are continuing to grow and it's all done remotely even before the pandemic. So how you're running a business at scale all remotely. We're going to talk and pick Jeff's brain uh coming up on friday so for uh tyler i'm ryan kramer the host of this show crossover commerce thanks for joining us on another episode again uh put in the work uh we'll make sure if you have any questions ask us in our social channels but good luck to everyone on their e-commerce and future endeavors put in the work and you'll be uh rewarded long term we'll catch you guys next time